You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. We've been marching through the 48 verses that make up the book of Jonah. And so uh, if you're fumbling around trying to find it, just give up. Go to the table of contents, find the page number, and that will help you. That's what I have to do. It's a little book in a very obscure part of the Bible. And uh, again, if you're new to Harvest Bible Chapel, let me let you know what we do at this point in the service every week. At some point, the pastor says, open your Bible. So open your Bible to Jonah chapter 3. The reason we do that is because we believe that God has spoken out of... uh, a place that we've never been, God has spoken into a place where we occupy time and space, and he has given us enough revelation for us to know him. He's let us know his will and his ways through a book called the Bible, and so as we open it up, we like to study the words so that we can apply those words to our lives, and so let me catch you up on the book of Jonah. I've had so many people come up to me and said, Trent, when you announced that you were preaching through Jonah, I just kind of treated that like a throwaway series. Because I already know the story, right? You know the story. God said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. He said no, and he went down and caught a boat to Tarshish. And God sent a big storm, kind of wrecked his boat. He got thrown overboard, swallowed by a big fish. He prayed, and he realized for the first time in his life, salvation belongs to the Lord. The fish vomited him up on the shore, and that's kind of where we left off the story. Now, last week, we finally got to chapter 3, and this is what it says in chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Last week, we talked about second chance obedience. Verse 2 says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So, verse 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. That's where we left off last week. So last week we talked about obedience. The same God that extends grace expects what? Obedience. And we learned a little definition. Do you remember the definition? I will not have you stand, but we will do the motions. Are you ready for this? Are you ready? Obedience is doing what I'm told to do when I'm told to do it with the right heart attitude. Mm Mm-hmm. There you go. All right, so don't forget that. I'm sure, how many of you taught that definition to your children this week as well, okay? How's that going? Is that working out a little better? Great. Well, in order for our children to obey, they need to see some parents that are obeying. We do not need to be like Jonah. And so here we are at the second half of verse 3, and it says this. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. We'll stop right there. What we want to do tonight is look at five things that God does to prevent a divine overthrow of a city or a nation. Now, I just got to tell you, the first part of this message is kind of dark. It's kind of the dark side, and uh, it's going to get better at the end, but you're going to have to hold on a little bit, okay? Especially at Christmas, we like to sing about the light of the world and joy to the world. The first part of this message is not very much light, and it's not a whole lot of joy. But we do need to understand that God loves our city. 
That's the first thing that God does. He just simply extends love to a very undeserving city. Now, in order for this message to make any sense at all, you are going to have to imagine yourself as a citizen of Nineveh. Now, before you imagine yourself as a city of Nineveh, I want to know what city you call your home. So on the count of three, I want you to shout back at me the name of your city. One, two, three. How many of you said Granger? How many of you understand Granger is not a city? It's not incorporated. It's just a dot on the map. We have a post office. I do not exactly know where the boundaries are. It's a territory. I don't know. It's not exactly a city, but we can kind of call it a city. It's a territory. And the message tonight is really targeted to the city where you live. And I want you to imagine yourself as a city of, as a citizen of Nineveh, but also the city where you live and apply this, the things that God said about Nineveh are very true of the city where we live as well. What do we know about Nineveh? We read here that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Let me tell you a little bit about Nineveh. It's located in modern-day Iraq. It's about 500 miles north of Baghdad, and today it is the city of Mosul. It is occupied currently by ISIS. And it is a place of great violence and great evil, which very much reflects its condition at the time that Jonah entered the city. It was an exceedingly great city. It was one of the great cities of the world. Quite possibly, it was the largest city on the planet at the time. It was one of the capital cities of the nation or the empire of Assyria. Assyria, along with Nineveh, were the sworn enemies of God's people, Israel. They hated Israel. They wanted to wipe Israel off the map. Does anything sound familiar to modern-day headlines? So there was this city full of great violence and great evil, and yet it was a city that God said was exceedingly great. It was great in its size. It was a population of probably around 600,000 people. Now, at that time, that was an incredibly massive population of people. It was about 60 miles across. It was surrounded by a wall that archaeologists tell us was at least 100 feet tall. And the width of that wall could sustain three chariots racing around the top of the wall, three abreast. It was an exceedingly great city. It was not only great in its size, it was also great in its sin. We don't know exactly what kinds of sin that was going on in the city of Nineveh, but the king knew about it. We're going to read that here in just a minute. And God knew about it. And there was enough sin going on in this city for God to righteously and justly destroy the city. And that's why God sent Jonah with this message. It was great in its size. It was great in its sin. And even though Nineveh was a great city, 
Nineveh was not a good city. And yet, Nineveh was great to God. God called it great. The word great there literally means, the the, the Hebrew word that's used there is the word Elohim. It's the word that's used for the greatness of God. And yet God is speaking and saying, this is a great city to me. It is great to me. And in spite of its sin, God had a heart for this city. God looked beyond the sin and saw the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, that he created in his image to know him, to love him, and to walk with him. And God said, this city is great to me. Think about everything God did to this point in the book to get the message of his love to Nineveh. He told Nineveh, he told Jonah to go to Nineveh because he wanted this nation, this city to be delivered. The prophet was disobedient. And so he chased Jonah down. He had him thrown overboard. He created a fish that swallowed him and turned him back in the right direction and spit him up on the the shore so that he would get the message delivered. All that God had to do to get the message demonstrates his love for Nineveh. And God loves your city too. And God loves America. America is a great nation. It's great in its size. It's great in its industrial complexity. It's great in its technology. It's great financially. And yet America is no longer good. Back in the 1800s, a man named Alexis de Tocqueville came from France. He was a political thinker. He came to America to discover the secret to America's greatness. He had seen it prosper. He had seen it grow exponentially. And he came to examine what makes America great. But it wasn't until he went into the churches that he discovered the secret to America's greatness. And he later said this, America is great because America is good. If America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. And he had some awesome lapels on his jacket. I just have to call attention to that. That's amazing. But it's true, isn't it? We've seen over the course of several decades our greatness dwindle as at the same time we have seen the morality, and the goodness of America be overtaken by evil and violence. You and I are citizens of Nineveh. It's really not that hard to imagine, is it? We are living in Nineveh, and yet God loves our city. In spite of the fact that America has declared war on all that is good, And here we are representing 
another city. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have been redeemed by his atoning sacrifice on the cross, if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, do you recognize that you are a citizen of two cities? You are a city of whatever that city was that you blurted out, but you're also a citizen of the city of God. And for that reason, we have hope no matter how evil and no matter how dark the conditions are in the city that we live in here on earth. We are living for a better city. And one day we will live there eternally. And so we may be living in Nineveh, and yet we have great hope because we know it's not our permanent dwelling place. There is hope, and yet there is work for us to do. You and I, like Jonah, must deliver the message. Here's the second thing that God does to prevent the overthrow of a nation. God sends his warning. Look here in verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city. Isn't it interesting? He didn't go around the city. He didn't stand on the wall of the city. He didn't just kind of step over the border of the city and shout real loud, so I'm hoping everybody. He went into the heart of the city. He went to the place where his voice could be heard, so the warning could be given, so that this city would know there was a God that loves them. He went into the city. Today it was great, just one of the opportunities that our church has just to go into the city. There was probably about 50 of us that, that gathered this morning around 8 o'clock, and we went into the city. We went into the assisted living facilities in our community and had conversations around the gospel for those that may never get out of those places and maybe closer to death than most of us and we wanted to make sure that they knew that the hope of Christmas was alive we sang Christmas carols we talked to them about the gospel and yet there's so much work to be done we go into the heart of the city with Project Warm and, and Hope Ministries and I trust some of you at some point realize the urgency to get out of the nice upper class white suburban Granger area of our city and go into the heart of the city to deliver the message that God has put on our hearts. Verse 4 says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. He called out eight words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Some of you are saying, boy, I wish Pastor Trent could preach an eight-word sermon. That would really cut my time in church. Well, we, this is pro that was probably the title, okay? That was probably the title. We don't know exactly the whole, we don't have the whole transcript of the message, but we do know what the, the nail was that he was pounding in that message. It was about God overthrowing a nation. Now, Jonah knew something about being thrown over, Right? And so from personal experience, he wanted to prevent them from what he had just gone through. Now, can you imagine Jonah walking into this city? Got seaweed hanging off of him, you know. His skin's probably kind of scarred from digestive juices inside that whale. He smells like fish. And there he is proclaiming in the heart of the city this message. In 40 days, you will be overthrown. The clock is ticking. He was trying to create urgency. Now, you have to understand something about these people. If you're a citizen of Nineveh, 
you are trusting in that 100-foot wall. You probably feel pretty invincible. The armies that would go out from Nineveh and destroy other cities, they would always overwhelm them. This was an undefeated city of Nineveh. And so to imagine that there would be any kind of threat that would overthrow this great city would have boggled your brain. You would not have had a category for being overthrown. You were the greatest, strongest nation and city in the world. There were no threats. There was no army big enough to take on the military might of Nineveh. Except for a one-man army named Jonah, armed with the Word of God. And God captured the city of Nineveh by a man who had been captured by God. And he delivers this warning. Forty days. Why 40 days? Why didn't God just say, um, 8 o'clock tonight? Um, that ought to give you enough time to repent. Why didn't you just say five seconds? You've got five seconds to repent and turn to God. It shows us the heart of God, that God is slow to anger. He's patient. He endures. He puts up with so much of Trent Griffith's slow sanctification and his rebellious heart, and he does for you too. Reminds me of a verse over in Second um, Peter in the New Testament, chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God wants all of us to be delivered from a divine overthrow. The word overthrown there is almost a hyperlink. When that word was used in this context, everybody, when they heard the word overthrown, thought of two other cities that God had overthrown. Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, in some sense, the famous destruction that God brought against Sodom and Gomorrah was rattling around in the minds of these citizens and they probably thought, oh no, we do not want hail and brimstone to be rained down upon us. God has our attention. And so we're responsible to deliver the message. God sends the message. Here's the third thing God does. God humbles the leader. Look at verse 6. We'll skip verse 5 for now. We'll come back to it. Verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Do you see those four verbs? In response to the message, there was a physical demonstration of what was going on in this leader's heart. What did he do? He stood to attention. God, you have my attention. Second thing that he did was he removed his royal robes. In other words, I am in the presence of someone who is supremely greater than me. I am laying aside all my accolades, 
all my reputation, everything that would signify that somehow I have authority here and I am bowing to another authority. That's literally what he did. He said he covered himself in sackcloth, like a burlap potato sack. He took off all the fine garments and he wanted his external appearance to reflect the way that he felt about his internal appearance. And then finally it says, he sat down, but not on his throne, but he sat in ashes, signifying a humble, repentant, contrite heart. And I believe in that moment he began to search his heart as God began to help him to realize you're not quite as awesome as you think you are. And you're not quite as invincible as you think you are. You understand this? Throughout the pages of Scripture, there is a principle that goes like this. God's plan A is humility. That's the program that you need to be on. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less and thinking of others, and it's not just something you feel, it's something that you do in response to God and response to others. To humble yourself literally means that you do something, not that you think something, but that you do something to demonstrate it's not about me, it's about others, and it's about God. So plan A is what? Humility. God's plan A is humility. Do you know what God's plan B is? Humiliation. If you don't get on plan A, you are signing up for plan B. And that was the message that God was sending this king. If you don't humble yourself, I'm going to have to do it for you. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you refused to humble yourself and then God kind of found a way to get you on your knees? Get you off your throne? Take off your royal garments and realize, hey, I'm not as awesome as I thought I was? God's plan A is humility. God's plan B is is humiliation. You want to avoid humiliation, so I would suggest that you get with plan A. Notice in verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne. Look at verse 7. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. So what he had modeled, he is about to call for. He, in verse 6, had modeled humility Now he is going to lead others in humbling themselves by issuing a proclamation. It's not just a private thing. Now he's going to go after every city and leads them to do what every citizen needs to do, humble themselves, repent of sin, and cry out to God. And so it says in verse 7, he issued a proclamation. He published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. And so he proclaimed a fast. Verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. And notice it's a God with a big G. It wasn't as if they didn't have gods. It's just they all had little Gs. They had false gods. And they were an idolatrous, polytheistic people. But when that king said, we're calling out to the God, the one with the big G, 
They understood our worship has been misdirected. We're getting our worship back to the only one who is worthy. And that's the God who has sent the warning. That's the God that we cry out to. Let everyone turn. Underline the word turn in verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So what was going on in the city? Two categories of sin. Evil ways and violence. We'll come back to that. Verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So he issues the proclamation because he was a leader. That's what leaders do. Leaders model for others what they should do. They don't just proclaim it from a throne. They get off the throne, they go with the people, and they call the people to do what they're already doing. So even as we see the headlines and see the presidential debates and the candidates jockey for position, we should be very careful about the leaders that we choose. And by the way, you should vote. You understand that? You are living in a nation where they still allow Christians to vote? If you don't take advantage of that, you're signing up for pagans to choose the leaders. And you should be very careful to listen to what the potential leaders say about their relationship with God. And any particular potential leader that would say, I have never at any time asked God for forgiveness. That's a problem. That's a leader who hasn't decided to get on plan A. He's signing up for plan B, humiliation. And when God humbles a leader, it affects those who are following that leader. Be very careful about the leader that you would choose. It's the job of the leader to model humility. It's the job of the leader to define reality. And that's what this leader does. He says, we're in trouble. He doesn't try to fix anything. He doesn't try to excuse anything. He just gets busy about humbling himself and defining reality. That's what a leader does over in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 8. There's a principle here. It's kind of a word picture. He says, if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? The bugle or the trumpet was equivalent to our modern-day communication devices and cell phones to tell people what to do. When they heard the bugle sound, that was the clarion call that we are about to go to war. And yet, if the bugler had lost his lip, how was anybody going to know it's time to engage in the battle? And so the leader's job is to blow the trumpet, to sound the alarm that this is serious. It is time to turn from from what we're following to the true and the living God. It's time to call out, as it says in verse 8, and to turn from these two categories of evil. 
evil, it says, evil ways, and then violence. And then he says down in verse 9, he asks a question. Do you see what it is? Two words? Uh, who knows? You see, apparently the king was very new to this God. He wasn't quite sure if he was a God of mercy and a God of grace, and, and yet he was hoping that he was a God of grace. Now, this king didn't know, but I know. This king didn't know, but you can know that there is a God of grace that stands waiting to hear the, the cry of a repentant heart and avert the disaster that he has planned on a city that's forsaken God. Here's the um, third. No, that was the third thing, wasn't it? Um, just, just briefly here to talk about these two different categories. It, it mentions it there in verse 8, evil ways and violence. Uh, I, I've been troubled. I've been heart sick as I've been watching the news and all the things that have been happening in our country in those two categories at an accelerated pace. And truly, we really are living in Nineveh. There's a lot of talk about the threats facing our country. We could, th we could talk about the financial irresponsibility of our lawmakers. Our nation is now over $18 trillion in debt. That means that every taxpayer, if you're a taxpayer, if you're not, you should be a taxpayer. If you're a taxpayer, you are obligated for $200,000 of our nation's debt. That's every taxpayer, $18 trillion. That, that, that's evil that somehow we've mortgaged our future. We could talk about the racial tension we've seen in recent months. Cities like Ferguson and Baltimore and now closer to home, Chicago. The race riots and all the different things that are going on surround the violence involved in all of those things. You've heard many times us talk around here about the breakdown of the family. Divorce that was so quickly accelerated in the 60s and the 70s as no-fault divorce laws came into play. And now the next generation doesn't want to get married at all. It's very rare to even meet a married person nowadays because they're giving up on the hope that you could actually live with somebody in harmony, in stability, in love, and in security for a lifetime. I met a couple today, and um, they were holding hands there in the, in the assisted living facility. I said, are you boyfriend, girlfriend? And they smiled, and they said, yeah, 62 years. And they weren't just boyfriend, girlfriend. They were married. And yet, how many of those people are going to see in the next generation. Our unbridled sexuality has resulted in more abortion, fatherlessness, and now complete gender confusion about what is a boy, what is a girl, and what are the expectations. All of that is the result of us shaking our fist in the face of God and saying, we don't want you to define our reality. And of course, we've heard recently about Radical Islamic terrorism. A couple of years ago in Fort Hood, recently in Chattanooga, and of course in Oregon, the school shooting there, and in the last week, San Bernardino. So much talk about refugees and who should we let in and who should we make sure we don't let in. Can I just simply say this? We must never equate peace-loving people with ISIS no matter what religious label they wear, even if they call themselves Muslim, 
We, we wouldn't want the man that shot up the Planned Parenthood abortion clinic in Colorado to be associated with us, even though he waves the Christianity flag. And so we need to make sure we're very careful about the things that we call for. If you value religious freedom at all, you must value religious freedom for all. Understand that the same government that can deny access to Muslims can deny access to Christians. The same government that might want to shut down a mosque can shut down a church or a Bible study. The same government that might want you to register as a Muslim might want you to register as a Christian. And we do not want to live in Nazi Germany. So before you make up your mind on that whole thing, you need to understand that the secular lawmakers that are talking about these things have absolutely no understanding theologically of the difference between a Muslim and a Christian. They just think these weird people that believe in things you can't see, something called a God, are dangerous. And so if you value religious freedom at all, you must value religious freedom for all. And as we talk about the things that threaten our nation, we need to understand this. Our threats are not external. The greatest threats we're facing are internal. It's our own evil ways. It's our own violent behavior that we rise up in selfishness and we forget humility and then our expectations aren't met and then we get angry and then we seek revenge and that is what is causing the violence that so characterizes our nation. Our greatest threat is not Islamic terrorism. Our greatest threat is God himself. As Americans, we have kicked him out of our society. We've kicked him out of our families. And yet, when we have a problem, we expect him to show up and fix our things so life can be more comfortable. And yet, we are living as citizens of Nineveh in danger of being overthrown by God. Our greatest threat is God. That's the dark side of the story good news is this. God humbles the leader and God sees our turning. Look back up at verse 5. We skipped that earlier. It says this, and the people of Nineveh believed God. We don't know exactly how complete that belief was, but at least they believed the warning that Jonah gave. Maybe that was the start of a relationship as they theologically understood this God that they'd never heard of. But in some sense, they believed the message that God spoke. And please understand, we say it so often around here, it's not what you do that makes you a Christian. It's not what you do that saves you from judgment. It's what you believe that saves you from judgment and prevents you from being overthrown eternally by God. They believed God. And because they believed, they did some stuff. Look at it, verse 5 again. They called for a fast. 
Fasting is just simply a way of accelerating or increasing our spiritual hunger. Fasting is a God-ordained way of heightening our sense of urgency. So often when our tummies are full and the temperature's warm and everybody's happy, we've got money in the bank, we don't sense the urgency that we're living under. And so fasting is a way of denying ourselves the pleasure of food for us to understand that our hearts are hungry for God. And so they proclaim a fast and they put on sackcloth, just like the king, from the greatest to the least of them. Maybe a fun little exercise we could do here in church is for me just to line up everybody here in a line from the greatest to the least. I could put my favorites down here on this line and the people that I think that got all the power and the influence and the money. And we could march you all down here until this, this poor guy over here that just doesn't have very much, he's just not very impressive. But do you know that those that would be at the front of the line are the ones that would have the hardest time humbling themselves and turning to God. It says, from the greatest to the least, they all found level ground. And they understood that unless we all together lock arms together, we are all in this together. In this city, I don't know from the greatest center to the least center, we could line them up that way too. But here's the thing. If God overthrows the city because of this guy's sin, guess who else is getting it? The greatest to the least. And so we have to own our nation's sin. When you pray, don't use the pronoun they. God, would you please forgive their sin? Use the pronoun we and our. God, would you please forgive our sin? We humble ourselves. We recognize we have forsaken you from the greatest to the least. And then we've already read 6 through 10. But then finally down in verse 10, he says this, when God saw what they did. God sees their turning. God sees their repenting. And it's awesome to think that God preserved this very obscure story about an exceedingly great city for us in the year 2015 living in America to read about the repentance of Nineveh. Why is that so significant? Because God is calling for us to do the same. He's calling for us to turn to God from the greatest to the least Jesus even used this page of his Bible to preach to his generation. And he said this in Matthew chapter 12. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. What was he saying? Their repentance is putting some of you to shame even though you have been given more grace and more opportunity and more knowledge of God than any other people on the planet and yet you simply won't understand the urgency of your condition. Turn around, repent, quit relying upon second chances and treat this moment as if it may be the last opportunity you have to call out to God, 
in repentance before he overthrows you. Here's the last thing God does. God displays his mercy. God displays his mercy. Look in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. Did God change his mind? Interesting question. There's several places in the Bible where it appears that God changes his mind. And that's because we, in our finite minds, are trying to figure out what God, in his infinite wisdom, is doing. God loved these people so much that in his sovereignty, he planned their repentance. And he sent Jonah to deliver the message that would result in their turning to God. In Jeremiah chapter 18, God gives us a principle. He says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, just put the words America or whatever city you mentioned earlier, if I at any time declare concerning America that I will pluck up, break down, and destroy it, if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. There is so much hope in that promise. And God, when he acted in response to Nineveh's repentance, was simply acting according to his will and his ways that he'd already announced in Jeremiah. There is hope for the greatest to the least. There's hope no matter how far we've run. And, you know, we can talk collectively about our nation and its problems and its sin. But you know what? I, I, I don't know. There's, there's, there's maybe a couple of lawmakers in here. We've got a couple that come to our church. But for most of us, we're, we're just citizens. And yet tonight, you've heard the word of the Lord. And the warning is as true for you as an individual as it was for the citizens of Nineveh. Yet 40 days. And you'll be overthrown. I don't know if it's going to be 40 days or 40 years, but America cannot continue on the course that it's on without receiving an overthrow by God. Unless he finds a group of people turning, turning their hearts, turning their ways, humbling themselves getting off their thrones, taking off their robes, falling on their faces to acknowledge our sin is great. We've been an offense to God. I want to give you some time to do that even here tonight. And before we pray, let me just say this. Some of you may have never understood the grace of God is available to you. No matter how far you've run, no matter how great you are, you need the grace of God. No one is so bad that you are outside the reach of God's grace. No one is so good that you don't need God's grace. Your religion can't save you. Your morality can't save you. Your family and your Christmas decorations cannot save you. It is the humility of heart to understand that God sent Jesus Christ in the form of a little child the least to become one of us 
And in great humility, he lived a life of perfect obedience, a life that you couldn't live, and a life that God will accept as your substitute if you'll only believe. They believed God. Do you believe the promise of the gospel? It's time for us to cry out. Why don't we just take a minute here, and Michael's going to play softly, and I'm just going to be quiet. But there at your seats, if you're here with a loved one, maybe you could just grab their hand and maybe whisper some prayers to God there on behalf of your city, on behalf of your family, maybe on behalf of your nation. Let's take some time and just bow our heads and seek the Lord on behalf of our city. Holy God, we very humbly acknowledge to you the ways that we have been independent and rebellious and thought that because of our greatness and our prosperity that we don't need you anymore. And God, as a, as a, a nation, we've told you no so many times. We've run from you. We've tried to erase you from our conscience. been rebellious and stubborn in our views of family and marriage and sexuality. God, our hearts have been full of hatred and venom and violence. Our streets are filled with so much hate and anger that has spilled out from so much unresolved hurt. God, you continue to show your patience to us. You continue to raise up prophets. You continue to plant churches where your message is is clear, your warning is heard. God, would you stir in us tonight an urgency to get serious with you? God, would you create in us a a desire 
to stop living for self, to fully and completely surrender to your worship, to serving you, to radiating your righteousness from our lives. God, would you clean up your church? Would you clean up the lives of those that call you Lord? God, would you rattle those that are content to have a passive, apathetic heart? Lord, we want to turn from our evil, turn from our violence. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for Christ that came to live a substitute life for us. Lord, even during this Christmas season, would you make that reality fresh and new in a way that would would rattle us to the core. God, we fall before you. If we had sackcloth, we'd put it on. If we had ashes, we'd sit in it. The best we can do is just um, humble ourselves and fall before you. So receive our prayer tonight. Receive our praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.